The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Main Street Vegan. I am so happy to be with you today in this wonderful month of December. We had some snow yesterday, and somebody in my elevator last night said, I think we're going to have a white Christmas. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. I love that kind of stuff. I love Courier and Ives, etc. And speaking of Ives, we happen to have a little kitty by that name or sort of that name sleeping, I believe, in the master bedroom closet at this moment. My daughter found this little cat. Isn't that always the way? (laughs) And poor little guy was so teeny and so scrawny. And she can't really keep cats at her place because her bathroom is full of pigeons (laughs) that she's rehabbing. And she has two big dogs, one of whom is a hunter. And she's also allergic. So she called me on Friday and said, how are you? And I thought she really meant that. So I was going on at length about how I was. And when I finished, she said, oh, okay, I found this cat. So I have had the little Ivy for a few days now. Uh, We took her to the vet and found out that she is a he. So he's kind of Iver or Ives or something like that. We do have two people who are interested in adopting him, two really good people that we know and have checked out. So I feel really, really grateful about that. He doesn't have any bad diseases, just one sort of parasite thing that we need to treat before adopting him out. And you know what? It is really okay. It's so 
curious to me that we all have our gifts and I want to do everything I possibly can do for animals. But oh my gosh, the thing that is so hard for me is that hands-on rescue work. I will travel by coach halfway around the world on a red eye and speak for 10,000 people who are mad at me very easily. But to have to take care of one poor little guy who's whose future, I feel, depends on me is so, so hard for me. And I'm grateful that my daughter is someone that maybe it's not easy for, but that it's natural for. And so she takes me out of my comfort zone and and brings me into the rescue world from time to time. I'm so grateful for that. And this little kitty has just brought us so much joy and delight. My husband, who didn't grow up with companion animals, he married me and I had four cats, a dog and a kid. I guess that was something of a shock. But he's just so taken to this little guy. And it's just a sweet, sweet thing. So if you see anybody that needs to be rescued through the bountiful mercy of of Facebook and other ways that we have to communicate these days, you'll find them a home. And it's a great blessing to be able to do this. At least that's how I'm feeling. There was a book that Cleveland Amory wrote years ago called The Cat Who Came for Christmas. And I feel like that's the way it is, that we have this little cat who came for Christmas and uh, brought with him quite a blessing. So other cool things have been going on in the veg world, at least the veg world as I see it this past week. A week ago, there was the most incredible event. It was here in New York City, but live stream over the web and if you didn't catch it you can still because you can see the whole thing and hear the whole thing online this was a debate with the subject being don't eat anything with a face so on the pro side our side or gene bauer the founder and co-founder and president of farm sanctuary and dr neil barnard of physicians committee for responsible medicine who's been a guest on our show and on the other side were joel salatin he is the farmer in virginia i believe who was featured in the film food inc and a young man from illinois named chris michael john who is part of the western price foundation and does nutritional research uh, out there at the University of Illinois at Urbana. It was such a night. First off, you just couldn't get tickets. I mean, you could not get tickets. I I thought it was like some kind of of basketball game where there would be scalpers and selling tickets for $1,000. I was too late to get tickets. I managed to get a press pass because of this very radio show. Yay, Unity Online Radio. And my husband managed to get a ticket through Neil Barnard. So we were both there, and it was just amazing. I actually got to ask a question. So if you listen online, you'll get to hear me ask a question. And I get to say that I'm from Unity Online Radio, which made me feel very journalistic and (laughs) important. But it was a beautiful experience. It also kind of helped me see where those people on the other side are, are coming from. And, you know, we all have the way that we see life. I just hope that we vegans and vegetarians and pregans and people leaning in this direction can just be so bright and sparkly and kind that people will want to hear what we have to say. And some of them, I think, will want to move in this direction. So if you want to find the debate online, just go to Intelligence Squared U.S. Dot org. 
intelligence squared s q u a r e d u s dot org and check out don't eat anything with a face oh by the way our side one now i know winning and losing is just not how we're going to make things better on this planet but you know as long as we're here and that's how it is it is my pleasure to report that yeah we did get the most points that was kind of fun now in another way that i guess one could say our side won well we haven't exactly won but we're certainly making strides is in what's happening with entertainers and sea world Since that wonderful film, Blackfish, what SeaWorld does with the orcas is really coming into the fore, as you all know. So first, it was the bare naked ladies who said, no, we're we're canceling our contract. We're not going to perform at SeaWorld. Heart also canceled. But here's my favorite, Willie Nelson. Now, he's my favorite because, number one, he's 80 years old. And a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you get to a point where you're set in your ways and you just don't change things. No, as long as you're alive, you've got enough mental and moral flexibility to change something when you see that it isn't right. And also because I love country music and so often people say, you can't be a vegan and like country music. Yes, I do. So I'm very, very proud of Willie. And another thing that makes this very special is that one of the documents that helped Willie Nelson change his mind and and not perform at SeaWorld was a petition, 9,000 name petition, that was started by Danielle Legg. Now, if you have been paying attention, you know that Danielle Legg is a great friend of Main Street Vegan Radio. She co-hosted last month when we did our show with the songwriter Daniel Redwood and um, David Simon, the author of Metanomics. That was uh, Danielle sitting here beside me. Well, now Danielle has had this wonderful influence on, on Willie Nelson. And because of that, she's been interviewed by CNN.com. She's been on the local TV in, in the Rochester area. She's just all over the place. And it's so sweet. She posted on Facebook that her dad, who has never quite understood the whole vegan thing that she's trying to do, is telling everybody, yeah, she's my vegan warrior. So congratulations to Danielle. And, you know, I think we think sometimes that celebrities have all kinds of power and everything they do is easy. But when you think about it, you know, it's not easy to cancel on a big old deal with contracts and lawyers and money at stake and disappointing one's fans. But these groups and these individuals are doing this, and I think it's just so, so cool. Now, also this week, we have all of us on this planet lost a a great leader in, in Nelson Mandela. And as I was thinking about Danielle and her petition and how one young woman in Rochester, New York, started something that changed the mind of a major celebrity. You know, we don't think that things like that are possible, but they are. And it reminded me of this quotation that Nelson Mandela read in a very famous speech that came from Marianne Williamson when he said, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Wahoo! So, hooray for Danielle, hooray for Willie, and hooray for all of us, because we are more powerful than we think. 
And right after this break, I will be back with two exquisitely powerful people who are making a difference in the world of those creatures who live in the water. We'll be back. Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to tens of thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you have been served by this programming, we invite you to support it by visiting www.unity.fm and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com. Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Music Speaks Louder Than Words is an inspiring, informative, and fun hour of uplifting, heartfelt music and commentary that delivers a powerful message of love, joy, and oneness. It will keep you smiling and singing along. Your hosts, Reverends Dale Worley and Christy Snow, are alive with the Spirit of God and singing their love to you each Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central Time with Music Speaks Louder Than Words. Music, it's the only thing that the whole world listens to. Music Speaks listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. It is my complete pleasure and joy and delight today that we're going to be talking about some creatures that we don't talk about a lot and that a lot of vegans and vegetarians tend to not think of so much. When we read those lists about how many animals you save when you become a vegetarian or when you become a vegan, it'll say, and and so many pounds of fish per year or per lifetime. It's not individuals, it's pounds and so it's difficult sometimes to think that beings who happen to live in a different environment and relate someone differently to the world do have 
a face and a life, and in most cases, a spinal cord and sentiency. So that's what we're going to be talking about today with two people who really know their stuff. We'll be bringing on Mary Finelli, who is the president and founder of Fish Feel. Dot O-R-G. There is so much great information there, so do check out the website fishfeel.org. Mary has been an animal rights activist for three decades. She has a bachelor's degree in animal science, and she has opted to be focusing at this point on fishes. And Jonathan Balcombe is a biologist and an ethologist. He's actually the person who has taught me to say fishes and not fish, because we say people or persons, we don't say blank. <laughs> so fishes make them seem like they are beings, which they are. Jonathan is the author of several books on animal pleasure and emotion. I have to tell you, Jonathan, that last night I lent your beautiful book, Second Nature, to my neighbor who is thinking of adopting this little kitten that I have because she came in, she met the kitten, and she said, animals are so much better than people. But I don't think she's a vegetarian or anything. So I said, here, you'll love this book. Jonathan is currently working on a book tentatively titled The Inner Lives of Fishes. He is the department chair for animal studies with Humane Society University based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Mary and Jonathan. So, Mary, you are so welcome. I'll start with Mary, ladies first, and then then I'll ask Jonathan something, and then we'll just have a conversation here because you guys know each other. So, Mary, what caused you to shift your animal rights work into the field of fishes? Well, I had been working primarily on uh, farmed animals, and, and the reason I chose farmed animals is because they were the greatest number, and so I thought it made sense to um, address them. But as I learned, uh, fish so far outnumber the other farmed animals. Fish are also farmed, of course. Fishes are also farmed and, and wild caught. And the, the, numbers, the number of land-based farmed animals are astronomical. But the number of, of aquatic animals that are used for food is just, just truly stupefying. It's just, there, there was a, a study done, um, and they attempted to calculate the number. And they, they took the, as you had said, usually the number is given in weight, and they took the, those weights, tonnages, and divided by the average weight of each species and they d- d- determined that between one and three trillion, with a T, fish are, are wild-caught every year. Uh, that's just a, an incredible number. And, and a large number of that, a large percentage of, those, of the animals that they catch are not even the intended animals that they're trying to catch. And so a lot of them just get thrown back dead or dying or ground up and used for fertilizer or something to that effect. And also a large percentage of those uh, animals that are caught from the ocean and the sea um, are used to feed farmed fish. So the number is just, just astronomical, truly astronomical. So it, and in addition to being such a huge number, they arguably suffer the worst abuses. And uh, tragically, they are receiving the least attention or concern for their well-being. So even within the animal rights community. So I just thought, you know, someone should be addressing fish. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad you are. And Jonathan, you have done so much for so many animals. What brought the fish issue into your awareness? 
Yeah, well, as Mary just ably explained, they're far and away the most exploited numerically. Um, and so that's certainly one reason. And the other, the other thing that I think makes it very timely to be starting to focus our attention on fishes is that they are so misunderstood. And the science of fish sentience, that is the capacity to feel, and fish cognition and uh, aspects of their behavior that uh, we just would have thought was fantasy just a generation ago. The science of that is really um, revealing aspects of their lives that, that shows them to be complex individuals with social lives, uh, emotions, memories, uh, tool use, parental care, individual recognition, etc. I mean, there's just so many interesting facets to them. And biologists are creative and clever about coming up with ways to study them. And I guess partly because they've been living underwater and we don't live underwater. We've, we have kind of missed the boat, missed the boat on them, so to speak. Um, but now, um, a lot of interesting studies are coming out. So it, it, it seemed like combining the, the, the incredible magnitude of exploitation with the remarkable advances in our understanding of fishes, the time is right to be focusing our attention on them, uh, which is why I'm so glad that Mary has started this group, Fish Feel, and which is why I wanted to write a book about them, because I'm not aware of a single book that truly goes to bat for fishes, a a true book of fish advocacy. And I don't mean, you know, fish conservation, although that's important to protect their populations, but I'm talking about seeing fishes as individuals whose lives are worthy of our consideration. Mm. Well, Jonathan, tell us a couple of specifics about some of these things that the biologists are finding out now about them. In other words, tell me a good old fish story. <laughs> well, I, because I'm a scientist, I tend, to, I tend to cite sort of factual things from studies rather than stories, but I, I, people love stories. It's important to incorporate, incorporate uh, stories into one's writing, and I certainly uh, have g- uh, garnered a number of stories from people now that will help to color the book that I'm writing. Um, in terms of the, the science, I, I, something caught my eye. Uh, a fish biologist wrote that, um, you know, we, we, we weren't sure if fish could recognize other individuals. Now, actually, when you look at the data, there's, there's yet to be a single study in which fishes failed to recognize other individuals. So it appears to be that uh, a very sort of basic skill that fishes have to recognize other individuals. Um, in terms of stories, the the best scientific story that I have that I, I really like to relate is is um, how how fishes what this phenomenon called cleaning stations on reefs. They happen in other habitats, but reefs are the ones that they're known best known for. And and these are mutualistic interactions. So it's a plus plus relationship where all parties benefit. And there are certain little fishes like cleaner wrasses and other ones that advertise that they're open for business and other fishes see them there. They know them, they recognize them as individuals and they swim up and they'll actually line up to wait their turn to be serviced by these cleaner fishes who pluck over them, removing parasites and algae and sloughing skin and what have you. So the trade-off, the, the, the mutual benefit is, is that the cleaners get some food and the, uh, and the client fish, and they are called client fish because this is sort of regarded by scientists as sort of like a business relationship. So the clients get a, a spa treatment. They get, they get cleaned and, um, you know, they, they, they probably they, they, they have less 
chance of getting disease and they have fewer parasites. So everybody benefits. And, uh, but it's more complicated than that. Other fishes actually watch these interactions because some cleaners uh, are better than others. They do a better service. Some, are che- some will cheat and bite off a little more than they should. And that's probably why other fishes actually watch these interactions and they keep accounts. They, they form image scores of the cleaners and they have favored cleaners and they return to their stations repeatedly and they will avoid the stations of cleaners who have done a bad job or have nipped somebody more than they should. And there's other fish that actually mimic the cleaners and deliberately bite off a piece of fin and then quickly swim away. So it's really Machiavellian, these social interactions. And it says a lot about how much more is going on between the eyes of a fish than we've given them credit for in the past. And how much we all have in common (laughs) as animals on this planet. Now, Mary, you have some amazing facts on on your site, uh, on the page that says fish sentience. I see here your quote, Cullum Brown, who says, a lot of people think that fish behavior is totally inflexible, like little swimming robots, but that's absolutely not the case. They can learn all sorts of things and adjust their behavior if only we give them the chance to do it. So what have you learned about these beings that humans ought to know? Well, uh, I think another thing that one of the most common way, aside from on their plate, that a lot of people know fish are as um, companion animals. And, and so often you see, say, goldfish in a little fish bowl. And people you justify putting them there because they, they claim that they only have like a three-second memory, something to that effect. But um, that, that really has been blown out of the water by, well, for one, the fact that Salmon and other migrating fish um, will travel hundreds or thousands of miles and then travel back to their home home base um, years later and from all these miles away and remember how to get back there. So that that shows they have memory. And uh, there was a scientific experiment where a scientist was um, ringing a bell and the fish would come over and he'd feed them when he rang the bell. And so they got acclimated to this, the sound of the bell meant food. And then he stopped doing it for weeks or months. I think it was actually months and then he, one day he came and did it again, and they came back. They knew the sound of the, they remembered the sound of the bell meant food. So I, I think that really shows that um, fish do have long-term memories, and they can uh, also have been shown to be able to recognize individuals and, and uh, fish, other fishes, and people. And um, there, and uh, you know, there have been people have explained um, how personable their fish are, and. Um, how smart and and uh, in fact on our Facebook page we have a um, one of our posts is of a, a man and his dog would come to the fish pond and he would feed the fish and then after the, the dog would go and do that himself just go and, and visit with the fish and the fish would come up and visit with the dog they just seem to enjoy each other's company in that way oh that's so sweet when I was yeah. nineteen I, I moved to the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in America outside Chicago it was kind of quasi rural then and we had a big property and there was a a pond with fish and one of the women every afternoon would go down and feed the fish and I remember going with her a few times and when the food was gone the fish would stay and just have some social time with her you know it wasn't one of these you know Pavlovian things of oh yeah any creature will come for food and that's it there was something else going on I've never forgotten that So as we talk about their cognitive abilities, which are fascinating, obviously fascinating to humans because we just think that's so important, but the main thing is that they're sentient, that they can feel. So what do we know about that that we didn't used to know, either of you? 
Do you want me to start, Mary? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, in 2010, there was a book actually that published called Do Fish Feel Pain? Uh, with the question mark. But really the, the uh, answer or certainly the evidence presented in this book by fish biologist Victoria Braithwaite is that they do. And it's based on a number of studies, but in particular a series of meticulously done scientific studies during the early 2000s on rainbow trout, which very systematically went through first their anatomy, what kind of receptors do they have, and they found they have the same sort of suite of receptors that mammals have in the face and that other vertebrates have of different kinds that respond to different kinds of noxious stimuli, that is chemical, heat, and mechanical stimuli. So the complexity of the nervous system was there. They fired these receptors, these neurons fired. They were very reactive to those stimuli. The brain registered those. Uh, these were in anesthetized fishes, so they were just looking at um, the 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 presence of different types of receptors. Uh, so physically, they seem to have the equipment for it. You would expect they could feel pain because it's very useful. Pain is very useful to avoid and remember bad things and avoid them in future. And then they tested them on, on conscious awake fishes and found that fishes who had been injected with a presumably painful, noxious stimulus such as vinegar or bee venom in the lips, they... Uh, um, show different behavior than fishes who were injected with a saline solution. Both groups were averse to feeding and change their behavior, but the ones with saline didn't change their behavior nearly as long. Um, the ones that received the painful stuff, they rocked from side to side. They rubbed their lips against the substrate. They um, didn't feed until some hours afterwards. And also uh, fishes that had received the nasty in injections if they were followed with an injection of morphine, which is known to be an effective painkiller in uh, mammals and other vertebrates, it had the same effect on the fishes. They would they would start feeding a lot sooner and show those sort of apparently painful reactions for a much shorter period of time. So, uh, and then finally, the, they did an experiment to see if if it affected their behavior, and they found that fishes who were presumably in pain would not avoid novel stimuli, that is something new put in their tank, a red Lego block or something else. Normally, fish will avoid something new. It's just a, a safety precaution until they get used to it and they know it's not a dangerous thing. Uh, but in this case, where, when they had been injected with something painful, they didn't show that normal behavior. Hard to interpret that. The scientists interpreted it as that they were so distracted by their discomfort or pain or stress that they, they didn't behave normally. Uh, maybe or maybe not. But in any event, it was a differential reaction. So that's a very brief summary of, the, of these particular experiments. There were earlier studies showing that pike and carp would uh, avoid a hook for a year or more after being hooked once. So there's certainly some evidence, despite what anglers will say about fishes being, you know, getting caught more than once on the same hook. I think that's kind of weak evidence that they don't feel pain, but certainly studies support that they do. Mary? Yes, and uh, we actually do have on the website also one of our fact sheets is a list of quotations from the scientific community acknowledging that fish do indeed um, are sentient and can experience pain and, and fear and, and panic and can indeed suffer. And uh, I'll read you one of them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the scientific literature is quite clear. Anatomically, physiologically, and biologically, the pain system in fish is virtually the same as in birds and mammals. In animal welfare terms, you have to put fishing in the same category as hunting. And that's by Dr. Donald Broom, professor of animal welfare at Cambridge University. Um, uh, was published in the Daily Telegraph. 
So is it just that they're so different looking from us that even most animal people haven't acknowledged them? Either the of you? That, go ahead, Jane. Uh, I think part of it is perhaps that they're they are different from us. They're they're cold blooded for one thing. Um, as Jonathan pointed out, they do live in the water, so we don't have you know it's not like we can cuddle with them or take them on walks or interact with them the way we can interact with other mammals or birds. Um, so I think there is a, another dimension that you know just like people from another culture, you know you're not going to be as familiar or be able to relate to them as well as people from your own culture. There's just you know, that those physical barriers and, and uh, cultural barriers. So it, it does take a little more um, perception to realize what fish are like. But, you know, many people realize intuitively what they are like, that they are indeed sentient, which I think, you know, for many of us, it's just a matter of common sense. Um, and, uh, and, and also, as Jonathan pointed out, there are studies that are bringing this to light now, and, and they, they are getting more attention. You know, people have been very receptive to um, the organization Fish Feel, and, and uh, I, I, it, we're, fish are pretty much in where chickens were 20 years ago, you know, where, where chickens were just so mass exploited and, and had so little attention. But now um, people are, you know, realizing that they are indeed sentient and they do deserve um, respect and, and legal protection. Now, that's so interesting. I remember when United Poultry Concerns was founded, and I remember thinking, oh, that's going to be a hard sell, but it hasn't been. And now a lot of us have huge compassion and understanding for chickens. I was just um, reading in um, the the book uh, Veganomics, which we'll have that author on the show in January, that if you just stop eating chickens and eggs, you do so much good that going the rest of the way to vegan is just kind of nice. But if you just, you know, do that, that's so great. And I see just now what you're saying. That is exactly where fishes are and how wonderful that we're talking about them. Jonathan? Sure. I mean, just in numbers, if we equate a fish to a chicken, which is a biologist, I don't want to do. Of course, they're different animals with different characteristics. But in terms of just raw sentience, I don't see any any solid uh, scientific reason to to non equate them that that they are individuals. They both uh, have integrity and they both have lives with and bio, biographies, not just biology. So if we do that, yeah, you can make a huge impact on individuals by not eating them. And as Mary pointed out earlier, with the bycatch. Um, if you if you don't buy a fish at the market, you're probably saving more than one fish. You're probably saving several. Ah, if you would like to join this conversation, the number is eight 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 five five eight six four eight nine. And after the break, we're going to talk about fish farming and our shellfish fish. And how about? Oh, I'm a vegetarian. Of course, I eat some fish. Stay with us for more Main Street Vegan here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is the secret to happiness? Why do bad things happen to good people? What is our purpose in life? What must I do to bring healing into my life? Join Rev. Paul Hasselbeck every Tuesday for a metaphysical romp. Explore fundamental unity principles put into action through real-life scenarios from people like you. 
Call in with your questions and spiritual challenges. And let Paul take you on a journey of profound personal understanding and transformation. That's Metaphysical Romp with Reverend Paul Hasselbeck every Tuesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. to Main Street Vegan. I'm your host, Victoria Moran, and I am here today with Mary Finelli, the founder and president of fishfeel.org, and Dr. Jonathan Balcom, author of Pleasurable Kingdom and Second Nature. You can find out more about Jonathan's work at jonathanbalcombe.com. I have in my over 40 years of history as a vegetarian and a great chunk of that vegan, um, have, I have lapsed, uh, at, in the past a couple of times and I lapsed back to fish. And I believe that part of what precipitated that, other than my own lack of being completely committed at the time, was this idea that there's something magical about fish in terms of nutrition. I always heard fish is brain food. And then we, of course, now hear all about the omega-3s and salmon is on every superfoods list unless that list is drawn up by a vegan. So do we really need that? Mary, you want to come? (laughs) Yes. Um, yes, uh, I mean, there, there is nothing magical about fish. You know, there, there are people, of course, who have never eaten fish, and they're thriving just fine. Um, really, and fish are problematic. They, they are potentially hazardous to your health because especially the um, larger fish that they catch, the, the top of the food chain predatory fish, they're consuming other fish, and while they're doing that, they're ingesting and accumulating in their tissues um, mercury and other heavy metals, um, polychlorinated biphenyls, otherwise known as PCBs and dioxins and other toxins. These are all accumulating. And when people eat that, they're also ingesting those um, toxins in their own body, which then accumulates in their bodies. So, so um, it is, you know, they are, they have potentially hazardous substances in them. And the same goes with fish oil, which is now such a wildly popular supplement um, that, that also can contain those toxins and, and it's prone to rancidity. So it's really not a health food. It's, it's actually not not something that you should be eating um, for the health reasons and also for the environmental reasons and for the ethical reasons. Um, and there are uh, all, the, all the nutrients that you can get from, the, from fish. You can also obtain from plant sources. Um, omega-3s, that's a big reason that people eat fish, but they can be obtained from sub, such substances as ground flaxseed or chia seeds, flaxseed oil, canola oil, soy products, hemp products, walnuts. Um, and if you want, you could even take a... a omega-3 supplement they make vegan omega-3 supplements which are made of algae which is what fish obtain their omega-3s from so you can get all those nutrients from 
non-animal sources. And, and we do have uh, on our website um, a vegan seafood uh, fact sheet that lists recipes and products and cookbook and all kinds of resources to help you um, obtain those um, vegan seafoods. I think so many of the animal products are really addictive. I remember after I was a vegetarian when I went back to fish and then I decided to stop again, it was more difficult than it had been before. There was just something so enticing about those flesh foods that I think sometimes on these things we just have to say, you know what? I might crave them for a while, and eventually that will go away. Nobody ever died of a craving. What do you and, guys and also, think? Well, you can also uh, get that ocean flavor. If you use a little seaweed, sea, seaweed um, put in some dulse powder or some nori, or you know, it, it has that ocean flavor that, that you can develop a craving for. Um, I love to eat. They, they sell those little seaweed snacks that Trader Joe's and other, other companies make them. Um, that are just dried nori sheets, and, and they're delicious. And, in fact, I brought a package home the other day and uh, left it out, and um, and the, the, one of our companion animals got into it and devoured the whole thing before I had a chance to eat it. They just they loved it, too. So ah. it, it's really delicious. Aha, uh-huh, <laughs> that – go ahead, Jonathan. I put seaweed in, in a lot of dishes, some soups to stir fries. I buy them in these, uh, you know, hundred packs of 100 sheets at the Asian markets, so they're a lot cheaper. Um and they're extra, uh, very versatile, and I suppose they do have a they have an ocean taste. I don't, I don't know if I think of it that way, but they do. Um, uh, I, I stopped eating fish. I don't know thirty, twenty five, thirty years ago, and I, I certainly don't miss it, miss it now. But like most people, I, I enjoyed it uh, when I ate it. But um, you know, you, you certainly your your palate adjusts to the the new flavors that you have. It does. And I think for me, it wasn't so much that seaweedy, fishy flavor as it was the texture. And there are some really wonderful vegan fish-like products. We have here in New York City the Meiwa Vegetarian Market um, down in, in Chinatown. And I know you have lots of listings on fishfield.org, Mary, for products that that seem like fish. Now, I know some people say, oh, poo-poo, fake meat. <laughs> you know, you don't need that stuff. Well, maybe not everybody needs it, but if you need it, you know, <laughs> have some. I was so happy that last week when we had a registered dietitian Jack Norris on, he was saying, oh, no, some of that food's just fine. <laughs> don't worry about it. And it is really helpful sometimes when you really just want something that you grew up on to be able to have it in a way that doesn't cause harm to anybody, including yourself. Sure. So, and, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, go ahead. about anything you can imagine, any type of um, seafood you can imagine, they make a vegan version of. It's just uh, amazing what is out there. Vegan abalone, vegan squid, it, it really just is amazing. You know, this is true. And, and my understanding is that monks, a thousand years ago, Buddhist monks in China started developing these ersatz flesh products, including fish, so that the vegetarian monks could eat the kinds of foods that they were used to. And heck, we've had a thousand years to perfect them. (laughs) So they're pretty good. Now, everybody thinks about fish in the ocean. We think about the environmental catastrophe pending, really, that many of the scientists say that we're looking at a time when there may not be any fish in the sea. But there's also fish 
farming, which, which is another problem. When did that start and what is it? Uh, I'll comment briefly. I'm not actually sure the origin. Mary may know that, but it's certainly the fastest growing sector of uh, meat production, animal flesh production in the world. It's And it's really truly is another form of factory farming because the, the conditions in which these fishes are raised in captivity or uh, semi-captivity, well, they are in captivity. They are confined. Sometimes these fish farms are actually in the ocean, but they're in pens. But the, the densities of the fish are very high. Uh, there's always problem with them, the, the pollution of the water from their own wastes. Uh, another very se- severe problem is the proliferation of parasites that normally wouldn't be able to flourish because the, the fishes are more spaced apart and they're, up in the, they're out in the open water. But in these confinement operations, they can very quickly spread through the population and ravage them. And some of the, uh, some of the impacts of these uh, sea lice and, and similar types of parasites are pretty awful on the fish. So that's another problem. Killing methods have been studied scientifically, but they, they are routinely and commonly inhumane. And um, so it's definitely a major problem. It is something that a lot of people are not aware of. Um, I'm sure, Mary, you, you might have some, something to add to that. Yeah, well, I would also say that, you know, they really, they douse these fish with antibiotics in an attempt to try to keep them alive long enough to get them to market. Um, and even it, when they're, when they're at, penned in at, in the open ocean, um, that, you know, those parasites, they, they really are just crawling with parasites, sea lice, and they can spread to other fish. And, uh, and if the farm fish escape, they're, they're problematic for the wild fish. So it, it really is a, just a major problem. And, as far as killing methods go, pretty much anything goes. There's no, they have no legal protection. They're not, they're not covered by the Humane Slaughter Act. Um, and uh, Mercy for Animals did an investigation of a catfish slaughter plant in Texas. And if you go to their website, um, you, you, they have a brief clip of it. I mean, it's one of the most harrowing things I've ever watched, and I've seen a lot of things. And they're just basically cut, cutting this fish up alive. It's just, it's just, just mortifying. I served as an expert witness on that very investigation, and I can certainly attest to what Mary says. It's pretty horrific. And this is standard operating procedure or just a really rogue plant operating outside of what's considered normal? I frankly don't know how representative that, representative that is, but uh, based on what I've seen of how fish are handled by people in general, um, you see them, you know, the, I mean, these fish in the video, most of what you see is them being skinned and cut up alive. But before they even got to there, they were they were in buckets without any water suffocating. So um, it extends the the suffering and and that's probably quite common. I mean, we all know that if you've studied any of this stuff, you know that the the primary motivation for however animals are treated is whatever costs the least. It's typically um, what saves the most money and uh, anesthetizing gets into chemical issues. And I mean, it's just, uh, it tends to lead to very inhumane handling. Mm. So in the circles that I move in, my friends who are not vegan tend to eat salmon. They may not eat any other fish or much of anything else, but salmon seems to have this this high value for them. So is salmon largely factory farmed? If not, talk just a little bit about that particular species, because that seems to be the one that people want the most. Uh, well, they are factory farmed, and and they are also wild caught. And uh, the the fishermen who catch the wild caught ones are very opposed to to uh, to the fish farming of salmon. But um, but both of them are you know suffer, and uh, 
as we were just talking about, the methods for killing wild caught fish are also horrific. They're they're caught in huge nets and crushed to, in the nets together. They are suffocated. They are frozen alive. Um, they sometimes when they're brought up from the deep, they just the decompression makes them makes their organs burst. Um, just just really horrific ways that these animals are killed. So either way, fish fish whether you're buying them from captive raised or wild caught. Um, there, it, just an immense amount of suffering. And again, all the nutrients you can obtain from those animals can be obtained from plant sources and in much more environmentally responsible ways. Thank you. Now, somebody please respond to this argument that I have had several times. People say, oh, well, with salmon, they catch them when they go to spawn and they're going to die right after that anyway. Can... One of you clarify this point and tell me what to say the next time that comes up. Well, I mean, just, you know, there's a big difference between dying after you've fulfilled your biological purpose and dying naturally um, up in those spawning streams and being yanked out at some other point uh, with a hook or or a net, um, you know, depending on the way they're handled. So, I, you know, I don't necessarily know the specifics of how salmon are are caught commercially, um, but I would just say there's a big difference to my life knowing that I'm going to die in my life um, than if, I, if I'm going to die of old age in relatively natural circumstances after my normal path of life is complete um, versus somebody deciding to end my life according to their own whims at some earlier point. <laughs> Mm, that that is just beautiful. It's far different to die after you've fulfilled your biological purpose. Wow. And 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 I would add that it would depend on when they catch them. But even if they were catching them closer to the end of their life, I mean, would it justify me um, killing an old person? That's still an eth- an eth- unethical thing to do if you don't need to do it. You're absolutely right. Now, how about shellfish? People are always arguing, well, shellfish don't have spinal cords, and so they're probably not sentient, so is it okay to eat them? Where do you guys come down on that? Uh, I I, um, just taught a course on animal sentience recently, and I had a section on invertebrates because, interestingly, some interesting science has been coming to light in the last few years. In particular, a lab in Belfast, Ireland, has been doing some studies uh, mostly on crustaceans, which is just sort of one branch of what we collectively call shellfish. So they haven't been looking at oysters and clams and mollusks, but uh, certainly um, crabs and prawns, so shrimp, uh, that group, there's some decent scientific evidence for the experience of pain. That is not just merely registering a noxious stimulus, something we would scientifically call nociception, which doesn't necessarily mean the the experience of something, conscious experience of something painful. But their experiments suggest that these, these animals are actually having a negative experience. They're remembering it. They avoid it in future. Uh, it's, it still leaves you with where do we draw the line, uh, but certainly based on that evidence, I would say that quite aside from the rapacious environmental effects of, for instance, the shrimp industry, which is uh, notorious, um, that uh, the shrimp themselves are also suffering, and so therefore there's an extra ethical concern there. And how about pleasure fishing, especially this strange concept of catch and release, which I've never understood? Mary? Yes, well, I think we've pretty much already covered that fish are indeed sentient. So, 
you know, getting a hook in your mouth, you can uh, have an idea of how painful that must be. And getting yanked out of the water, it'd be like someone putting you under the water. You're out of your element. You can't breathe. Um, and uh, and they've shown that even with catch and release, when they put the, the fish back in the water, they've shown high numbers, high percentage of these animals die within a few days from injuries, trauma. Um, as Jonathan was mentioning before, fish, you know, usually they they will avoid a novel object. But in these cases, fish are kind of like uh, shell-shocked, and they're more prone to predation. So, you know, they, they are much more likely to um, – they suffer injury and harm and, and much more likely to, to die. Um, and it's actually been banned on humane grounds in Switzerland and Germany. Aha. I love it when countries and municipalities start banning some of these things because then it really, really wakes people up. I know when West Hollywood passed their fur ban, somebody said, oh, well, West Hollywood, that's a small town. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's a group of people saying, no, we've actually had enough. So we have two whole minutes left. So I'd love to give each of you about 45 seconds each. Jonathan, what's your thought? Um. Well, I'm glad you're hosting this issue. I'm glad that Mary started Fish Feel. I'm glad that I'm working on a book on the inner lives of fishes. It's uh, it's a sign of the uh, of the, the next phase. I mean, uh, the, a sign of the times that we are beginning to finally uh, pay some attention to a group of animals that deserves our attention, a group of animals that uh, collectively is exploited in just, uh, as, as Mary said, beautiful words, stupefying numbers, uh, uh, we we need discussion about this and we need change and it's good to see that change is, is already beginning to happen. Thank you so much and thanks for all your beautiful work. JonathanBalcom.com. If you don't know his work, check it out. He's really somebody to know. And if you ever get to hear him speak and see his wonderful slide presentations, you'll be a changed person. Mary Finelli, president of fishfield.org. What's your final thought? Well, I also want to thank you, Victoria, for addressing this issue, and and I'm probably looking forward more than anyone else to Jonathan's book coming out, <laughs> and I would like to um, direct people, and I have also heard his presentations, and they are um, interesting and very um, entertaining, so you don't want to miss that if you get a chance to hear him. And um, uh, we did just put a new PowerPoint presentation on our website today, so I'd like to direct people to fishfield.org, and also we have a Facebook page. And uh, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that fish are finally being um, addressed. And uh, it's just unfortunate it's taken so long to, to come about. But people are very receptive to it that I've spoken to. So um, their, their day has arrived. Ah, uh, That's lovely. I'm going to go like you right now on Facebook. Thanks, everybody, for being part of today's show. Next week, our guests are Karen Dawn, author of Thanking the Monkey, and Kevin Storm, 12-year-old radio host on his terrestrial show out there in Pennsylvania, a vegan radio show, Wonderkind. Thanks, everybody, for being part of this wonderful Main Street Vegan Ministry. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and to all of you. God bless and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net.
Ever notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. Take a moment now to reflect on this message from Daily Word. Is something in your life causing you concern? Don't be discouraged. The presence of God is peace and harmony, healing and creative ideas, is with you every moment of every day, providing the help you need. In quiet moments of prayer, let go of any concern. Anchor your trust deep in the realization that with God all things are possible. Never doubt it for a single moment. You are a spiritual being, blessed with all that you need for happiness and fulfillment. God's wisdom will guide you. God's strength will help you do all that you need to do. And God's joy will lighten your heart with hope and courage. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Do you think you know all you want to know about the characters in the Bible? Do you know who could be called the king who loved too much? Or what it means to be a Jezebel? Or that the best love story in the Bible begins with the declared commitment of two women? The Bible's symbolic meaning can help you transform your life and discover the presence and power of God within you. Find out what these characters can teach you about your own life today by tuning into Biblical Power for Your Life. Each week, co-hosts Rev. Karen Tudor and E.J. Niles present a Bible character from a historical, cultural, psychological, and symbolic perspective. Your comments and questions are part of this lively discussion. Tune in every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and power up your life only at Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Oprah Winfrey says that Eric Butterworth's book, Discover the Power Within You, changed her perspective on life and religion. Maya Angelou quotes Emily Cady's Lessons in Truth as she recalls her own spiritual awakening. What do these books have in common? They share Unity's classic teachings. Join Reverend Laura Beth Gilbreth, Minister of Unity Transformation, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, For Hooked on Classics, exploring Unity's classic teachings. Follow along and contribute your thoughts, questions, and ideas as we examine these foundational teachings through the works of Unity authors past and present. Hooked on Classics, exploring Unity's classic teachings. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. 
Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.